Are you happy? Magic Seeds takes a good look at everyday challenges and gives solid advice on how to navigate through them, be it relationships, career, parenting, or just not feeling happy inside. I'm Dr. Adam Grise. And I'm Laura Grise. Please join us weekly to discuss everyday situations that seem to be getting in the way of feeling happy and peaceful. We'll provide magic seeds and a reliable roadmap for you to follow to stay on a healthy path for your life. Welcome back to Magic Seeds. Today, we are expanding on the self-love series, right? Yes. Okay. Why don't you tell us, what are we talking about today, Laura? So we are still working on the self-love series, and we have about, I would say, four stories from the self-love series. And so we are just continuing on taking a look at the foundations of childhood and where that leads us into adulthood as far as how much we love ourselves. And we have different variations of stories of the podcast here. And today we have a very intense story of a childhood and how her love from her mom was hot and cold. And that is an understatement. So the mom was abusive and then the mom was very loving. So this should be a really interesting podcast today. And the journey that our guest has taken into adulthood. Very cool. I mean, mm-hmm. not cool and cool because it's amazing that it doesn't even matter so much that you hear, like you're talking about these childhood stories and my God, it's working in the field. You just realize how rare it is for someone to walk unscathed right. through childhood. I mean, let alone just being abused in royal fashion just even getting out without even any neglect, any... I was going to say, neglect alone accounts for so many people. And then even if you have a quote unquote pretty vanilla childhood, that doesn't mean you've learned how to love yourself, (laughs) right? right? It's hard enough to get that download, to understand, oh, this is what it means to love myself and value myself unconditionally and accept myself no matter what. It's hard enough. But if you then are dealing with trauma... You don't even have a prayer at this point. But again, what we've talked about before is we are growing up that age gap of when we're born to seven, we're taking in other people's baggage. Mm -hmm. So forget about the abuse level, which is, I mean, astronomical, but just taking in the parent and the caregiver, whoever is around you from zero to seven, all their baggage. I mean, no, no one has a prayer to, to learn how to love themselves. I often find myself talking to patients and we're going in this and the first thing you know, people come and it's like, okay, tell me your story. Let's lay, lay it all out, put, put, throw the bag out, lay all the contents out. And invariably, there's just a million different things from their upbringing. And I always come back to, hey, listen, the guardian or the parent, whoever raises you, you A, didn't have the power, the tools, the strength and know-how to do this yourself. We're supposed to get informed by our guardian, by our parent. But it was never supposed to be an externally generated way of living. It's just supposed to, we had to kind of get the download from someone so we can learn how to love ourselves. Mm -hmm. So no matter what the trauma is and what the childhood is, sometimes determines how mountain we have to climb up Mm -hmm. once we're an adult. But once we're an adult, then it's up to us, right? If we got good downloads, then it's easy. It's like, oh, I know exactly how to love myself. But if you don't have that, you're like, okay. I was supposed to maybe, thinking how it was supposed to happen evolutionarily speaking, was supposed to get these downloads, but I got what I got. 
And looking back at it, oh, I have a lot to fix and to heal, but we all have that, can take that agency when we're older. It's like, okay, here's my starting point. It's not my fault. This is my starting point. Right. But what can I do now? Because there's so many people who it's like, well, oh, my dad treated me this way. My mom treated me this way. Or these bad breaks happened in my life. And then the mind fixates on that as the reason, the cause. Stuck in the past. But then it leaves us stuck. Right. Right. It makes it hard because the now, well, now I'm 30 and I'm behind the eight ball. So instead of just being like, well, let me be where I'm at and where I'm at might be painful. It might be scary. Right. Acceptance of the now. But that's where the healing begins. And so I know our guest today, Evan, is someone who has worked so hard and someone who is filled with so much love and to that point where I have to make this for myself. And it's a work in progress, of course, but that's what I'm really looking forward to. So let me introduce Evan. Evan is a minister, a musician, a creative writing teacher. She's hands down, and I don't say this lightly, she is the most loving person I've ever met in my life. Yes, for all creatures. For all creatures. (laughs) It's really kind of crazy. And anyone that I know that knows her, they'll all say the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's just overwhelmed, overwhelmed with the amount of love that she has. I I tell people, I'm like, she's not a human. So if it doesn't make (laughs) sense, if it doesn't quite head up, this is why, because she's not human. She's sent from above type of thing. And what's remarkable about Evan is that her, when you hear her story, for the ability then to show up the way she shows up, it really just blows me it's away. Unreal. So Evan, are you on with us right now? Hi, it's so good to be with you both. You're very kind. Thank you so much. <laughs> very, very kind. Very gracious. Thanks Thank for being you. on. You too. I love what you do. I'm just so excited about Magic Seeds. So thank you. <laughs> I feel so rich that, that you're letting me be a part of it. Thank you. Okay, so then let's get right into it, Evan, because mm-hmm. I'm caught up to speed with you. I'm not even sure Laura is completely caught no, up to speed with you I'm and not. definitely listeners not. So what do you want to share with us today? And we're just trying to get an understanding of what it was like. What was the foundation that you lived within to set the stage for you then to begin the work of self-love? So in talking about a foundation, setting the stage, I remember being in a classroom. I can't recall if it was high school, maybe some seminar in college, but I just remember a teacher saying, striking so, so hard, a teacher saying that initial childhood memory, it is so powerful. It's such a meaningful marker in the life of a person. And of course, immediately my first memory became, which had always haunted my childhood, haunted my life, became so crystallized there. And it was a memory of my mother trying to kill me. And I remember broaching that with my father years later and my dad saying, I don't understand how you can remember that. It doesn't make sense because you were so young. You were just an infant. But I I remember all the details. I remember her face. (laughs) I remember I was lying on a hardwood floor. And that was the starting gate of my life. I think about that first memory and how powerful it has been. You said earlier that my mom was abusive and Of course, in exploring my mom's life, especially the last few years of her life, she talked to me about how she was abused. And we do keep repeating these patterns when we don't 
heal them. And that was certainly what happened in my life. The battery um, that was a regular factor, not a constant factor, because when my mother was well, for me, my mom was this magical creature. She was incredibly funny, incredibly loving, cared for the poor, rescued animals. I always think if things had been different, my mother could have been the stand-up comedian because she was the most hilarious person. And I think sort of forged my love of storytelling, my love of laughter, using laughter as a medicine. Yes, you're talking about foundations. My very first memory is my mom trying to kill me. So it was pretty big. That's, yeah, I mean, that's obviously as big as it gets. Mm -hmm. And as hellacious as that is, it's also kind of sets up this really fascinating back and forth where your mom would go back and forth between identities where one was so loving and so nurturing. And so I can't even imagine, obviously, as a child, where part of you is opened and loving this person in front of you, and then but then has no idea when it's going to switch. And we talk so much about having boundaries and how important that is and to know when to let people in and how much to let them in and when to put up a gate with them and not let them in. As a child, you don't even have that capacity with an adult. It's not even there. Let alone your mother. Let alone have established with your mother on that biological level. It's so obvious, even if it was just your first memory, your mother trying to kill you. And then it was like, oh, that was it. I knew I had to, as I grew up, stay away, stay away, stay away which would have brought with it still a ton of trauma there. But to go back and forth, and obviously you can hear it in your voice that you have so much love for the essence of who your mom was when not living in this identity where she was abusive and trying to kill you. What about that component where you don't even know what's coming and when it's coming? It was incredibly confounding. I had to learn Laura, I think it was Laura, you were speaking about newborn to age seven, how sculpting that is, how powerful that season of life is in building who you are. And I had to learn early on to watch for the signs, that change of the face, the change of the eyes, the change of the voice to prepare myself. Is she going to yank the electric cord out of the wall and be bloody? Or are we going to bake a cake and have a good time? So I always find myself, I I feel like I micro read people, which is incredibly distracting in life. But my childhood sort of ingrained that in me where I had to watch for incoming pain. So that's just one way it has really affected me. There's got to be a trust factor or a lack of trust factor for anyone who you meet because if someone wants to give you love, you're looking at them like, I don't know who you are. There's got to be some kind of barriers there to not fully let yourself open to pure abundance. Yes, that has been an issue to the extreme for me where I don't allow myself to sort of deeply relax in relationship because I do have that just the poison of hypervigilance all the time. I've been married to the loveliest soul now for almost 30 years. We've been together for 30 years. And just yesterday I saw, you know, I was watching his face. I'm always watching 
for, okay, when do I need to run? When do I need to protect myself? When do I need to seek cover? So that continues to be this sort of loud hum through every day of my life. And of course, I'm trying to discipline myself to have peace. I'm trying to discipline myself always to to seek the truth of the moment instead of how deeply it's been colored and tattooed with childhood trauma. Yeah. Isn't that poignant dynamic there in the sense of we try so hard to find peace, right? And it's like, especially if we've gone through trauma, it's like, I just want the peace. But the truth of the moment, right? You're saying like, I just want to be in the truth of the moment. The truth of the moment is wide open. And most of us are living under the illusion that we're safe, the illusion that nothing bad's going to happen in this next moment. And it's just the people that have gone through trauma that are like, uh, anything could happen at any time. And is really getting back to saying, no, the truth is everything's fine right now. I don't think that's the truth. Mm -mm. The real truth is I know I'm not in control of 99% of what goes on in this world. And probably that's even an underestimation. Uh And I'm still going to be here in this moment and allow it to come at me. I'm going to be in a state of allowance, realizing part of that allowance means some stuff can happen that is going to be painful to varying degrees. And I'm still going to sit here and breathe until I regulate in that uncertainty. Because the moment, the present moment, be in the now, is, includes all possibilities. But coming from her childhood, she didn't know she was going to make it through that moment. It makes sense to go through childhood and develop defense mechanisms, right? Like that's not even, right. It's not even a question like for Evan and anyone else dealing with any trauma, let alone, you know, this extreme trauma, it's going to take until you arrive at adulthood when you realize, okay, I'm now in charge of my life. Now let me take stock. Oh my God, I've been shut down for 20 whatever years. And then, yeah, that's when it has to change. And that's when it's really scary. At that point, it's subconscious. You're not gonna just open up. Let me ask you something. Was your family around accepting or knowledgeable of this abuse? As far as my extended family, there were times I reached out for help. I remember talking with an aunt and she she completely disregarded everything I said. It made it. I really went deep into my shell after that. She disregarded everything I said, but I was just ask, asking for help. But I grew up in a family where my parents were incredibly respected. My parents were paragons of virtue in our community where I grew up. Let me tell you, everything looked like a fairy tale from the outside. I actually have had numerous people use that phrase, that that your life looked like a fairy tale, because everything looked pretty from the outside, and we grew up helping people, and, and my dad, incredibly successful in his work, and my mother, very successful in her work. So your appearance of things just being absolutely wonderful. So as far as the extended family, when I did try to get help there, it did not come. And as a matter of fact, I was shamed for talking about what had happened behind closed doors. So my safety person was my brother, my brother, Stephen. We were going through the same things. And I remember one time he was beaten and beaten and beaten. And I could hear what was happening from the other room. And I remember just going to him 
and comforting him, and he would comfort me. So we had one another until you know, he was several years older, until he ran away first. And he so sadly, when I was 15, he was brutally murdered. So at age 15, I lost this person who had been my kindred in the nightmare. <laughs> I lost the person who would believe me. It was monstrous on so many, many levels losing him, but we could always commiserate. It sounds like he was the one person who could mirror self-love, right? Like if we kind of get that mirrored, if we're supposed to get it from our guardians or parents, whoever, and they hopefully love us and value us and nurture, nourish, accept, support us unconditionally. So ultimately we learn how to find that within the only place you could even get that mirrored then not only just goes away, but becomes another trauma. And he's the only person that could validate your truth. Right. And in That's order it. to love yourself, That's it. you need to identify your truth and speak mm. your truth. And how are you supposed to do that when everybody else right. around you says, no, what you say is not true and valid? I mean, it's nuts, especially adults, to do that to yeah. a child. You absolutely nailed it, Laura. The validation, he was the one person for that because we both were physically abused. I feel like he and my mother had a different dynamic where he didn't get the emotional abuse so much. I don't remember. The first time I was called, I hate this word, the first time I was called a whore, I was in fourth grade. I didn't know what the word meant. I had to look it up and I still didn't really know what it meant. But I don't think my brother received the, the verbal, emotional strangling that I did. God help him. God love him. But he was certainly, we had that fellowship of sufferings with the physical abuse and we did comfort, comfort one another so much. My dad, in so many ways as a child, my dad was seen often as a hero because he would thank me. He would, well, my father would take a, a switch and, you know, switch my legs with it, but he would not wail on me. He would not beat me senseless where I would get in the bathtub just to take away the pain. And I remember just sitting in the bathtub and my legs being shredded from the prongs of the electric cord and just bleeding there in the bathtub. So my dad was almost this, you know, he was, he was like a hero because he didn't beat me and he would allow me to talk about my pain. Now, of course, I realize now that with my dad, it was a lot of smoke and mirrors because he would tell me, okay, so <laughs> it just, it would get absolutely crazy. My father would tell me that, okay, so the reason she's beating you like that is because she's going through X, but as soon as this, that's over, she'll stop beating you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I remember when my brother was incarcerated, my brother went into prison when I was very young. I was seven years old. It almost killed me. I did consider he was everything to me. He had gotten involved with drugs and we were in the Reagan era, the war on drugs. So there were these hard, hard jail sentences for people who were nonviolent. And my, my brother was victim of that. And I remember when he went into prison, the beatings increased, the attempts to kill me increased the just hitting me for no reason. I remember I would ask, why? What did I do? And asking it caused the beatings to worsen and crying made it worse. And I remember I would have to train myself to not cry no matter how hard I was being beaten or to make myself stop crying because she'd say, I'm going to beat you until you stop crying. And I remember my dad saying, well, when he gets out of prison, it's going to be so much better. 
I remember I was 13 when a real blessing, my brother got out of prison earlier than he was scheduled. And I was so happy because my brother was home and I remember walking out of the house to meet him on that gorgeous day, April 19th, 1983. And I was hugging my brother and to take off the prison clothes and put on his real clothes. And we were so happy. And I was also so happy because my dad had assured me the beatings will stop. She's going to get better. And that was not the case. My mother's dissociative identity disorder actually worsened after age 13. So. Wow. So with all of that, right, living in that environment, and navigating through the minefield of that landscape, how do you feel then? And I know this isn't even your whole story, mm-hmm. right? It's, I mean, we could probably talk for another three hours to get the story even more complete so people can understand the depth that this goes. But already it's so powerful mm-hmm. in how does that affect someone in their ability to practice self-love, to develop a relationship with yourself and to develop healthy boundaries and an ability to go forward in life in with healthy relationships. Just to even feel self-worth. I mean, all that compounded has got to make you feel not worthy and that you can't find your own truth. And then for your dad to tell you to keep on looking forward because things are going to get better. So you're constantly looking into the future and not staying present. I mean, right. your needs aren't even, it's to not even be validated. Like this is okay. Things will change. Things will get better, but not like, let me show up for you. Right. What are your the self-sabotaging programs that you have today? Early on, I was doing some destructive things that I was trying to find comfort in. And, and also, also through the grace of the Lord, I was also learning what really did heal me. I always think of the, the cartoons, the little devil on the shoulder and the little angel on the shoulder. Um, the little angel won many, many times throughout childhood, helping me love myself and take care of myself. But the little devil also had some major victories that still sort of work on me. I remember being incredibly young and after a particular brutal beating that went on for a very long time, she would just wail and wail and just beat me, beat me. And then She'd get tired and then she'd come back for another serving. And I remember after that, finding comfort for the first time as a small child and just walking down the stairs and going into the kitchen so fondly. It was really comforting, beautiful space. My mother was such an artistic soul, so her house was always a lovely, lovely place. And going into the kitchen and just opening the fridge and finding comfort there, finding some mothering from from food. And that really became problematic as an adult after I was victim of a violent crime myself because I did some damage with that. So I self-sabotaging by finding comfort in food, huge, just really huge, caring for others, but not myself, instead of focusing on rescuing myself. Let's rescue animals. <laughs> Let's rescue every dog and every cat, every squirrel. And I'm glad that as far as the caring for others, human and non-human, I'm glad that that has been ribbon through my life. But it's at a detriment when you're not caring for yourself. Yes, it is. Absolutely. That's when we talk about like, how, what's the typical ways that people generally deal with this type of stuff? I mean, I think you're hitting the nail on the head where deep inside, 
there's a cry to be healed and to be nurtured and to be nourished. Just feel comfortable. It's like we want the end product, but in order to get through it, we have to sit in the pain, which is just a non-negotiable for the mind. So it goes directly for, right, immediate, like, how can I feel what I'm looking for immediately? Oh, if I care for an animal, then I get the caring, but it's just so hard to sit. It's it's a drug. It's it's essentially a drug. You're just, it's a way of tending to the inner cry without having to sit in the pain of what you're feeling. But the problem is in order to heal, you have to go through that pain. That pain has to be released. And the only way it can be released is to be in a state of allowance, to be in a state of allowance with such shockingly horrific experiences is so counterintuitive. Why would I allow what was so horrific to begin with? Because the mind just can't see that. We have to now let it come out and we have to re-experience it. And as much as it feels like we're drowning in it, we're actually allowing it to lift. And I'm sorry, it's not going to lift in four seconds. I have no time limit on this. And it might be a hundred waves of hours at a time and years and years, right? That is so difficult. And just even eliminating the eating, right? Where like the self-sabotaging eating, the emotional eating, we can even call it toxic caring because it's not. I mean, like you said, Evan, you've lived true to your heart. You love people more than, and animals more than anyone I know. That is as authentic as authentic gets. I don't question that for a second. But then it becomes toxic, like how you're saying, Evan, where it's now overtaking your ability to really hold space for yourself the way your body or your soul are asking for. And taking care of yourself means taking out the trash and letting all that come out so that you finally have a sense of peace. Yeah. You two were the first to really put that in my face. And, oh, it's bloody awful. (laughs) (laughs) I did not like it. I still don't like it, but it is taking out the trash, like you said, Laura. I think of, as you're talking about it, I think about the shellac of my life, that fairy tale life, that everything looked so beautiful from the outside. The house looked beautiful. Everybody looked lovely. Everybody at church and living for Jesus and everything's just wonderful. Then behind closed doors that I still have that tendency to want to shellac things. I don't feel like I do it now, but there's that urge like, okay, let's just cover it up and make it look really, really good. And having to do this work of clearing the pain now for these last five years, it has been brutal, so necessary. Sitting with pain, it has been almost impossible for me. And I remember my husband saying to you, Dr. Grice, like, why does she have to keep reliving it? It's like, well, we have to get it out. And that is happening. Instead of we talk about the tapes we run, you hear therapists talk about these programs we run internally. I think I would always just try to record over the tapes. And now I am trying to just, hey, get rid of those tapes. Get rid of them. Glean what you can from them. Find the beauty, extract those, and then you can dispense a lot of the old tape that we do run that leave us self-sabotage, that leave us finding comfort in the external. And also, I remember a profound piece of advice one time, but always do the things you don't want to do. (laughs) I can't stand that one because there are so many times where, I don't know, 
there's no way I want to do this. And then in my head, I say, well, that's the thing you don't want to do. And now you need to go do it. (laughs) So when I call you out on something and you immediately say, don't put your crap on me. Now I can say, no, 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 no. Do the thing you don't want to do, do, Laura. Just just deal with that. (laughs) So one interesting dynamic, I could be off here, but the fact that I know you hold so much love for your mother, right? And yes, yeah. And I can imagine must have played some part in how you develop as an adult, where it's like you want to find the good in everybody, but at the same time, it leaves you open to getting blindsided. She's been told to have the love for her mom as well from a very young age. So not only could she never, ever feel anger towards her mom or resentment, she was also told that she had to look at her mom a certain way, in a positive way, even though she was beating her. But I mean, have you ever allowed yourself to feel anger and resentment towards your mom and just sat there with that? Or have you always had rose-colored glasses towards your mom? So interestingly, when I was just very, very tiny, I had one of those those little diaries that you get, the little gold lock and the gilded pages is tiny. Absolutely. Very, very young. I would allow myself to write down in my six-year-old, seven-year-old vernacular, I allowed myself to just really put some rage in there. (laughs) I remember just all letting it just pour out. And that was sort of this healing mechanism that I naturally saw. But it wasn't long thereafter. I opened it up and I was horrified. I was horrified that I wasn't being a loving daughter. I wasn't being a Christian because my faith was and is everything to me. It is the rock I stand on. And so I remember, I don't even know how long it was after just pouring all that pain and anger onto the page. I tore all the pages out that where I had expressed anger towards her. And that tearing all the pages out has certainly become a metaphor because I think I had this really poisonous mechanism of wanting to, in my memory, tear the pages out when people show you who they are. And this weird dance, this weird dance between hypervigilant and reading faces, looking for danger signs. <laughs> On the other side, this whole polarity of not really allowing myself to push away things, people, experiences that are bad for me. I want to, again, as I said, shellac them, cover them up, paint them over. And I have done that so many times in so many relationships that have, well, it's just been incredibly destructive. I remember I've shared that several years ago, I was a victim of a, a violent crime in the workplace. and. This person, the man who assaulted me, I had seen his true color seep out. I would override it because I'd feel guilty. I remember um, telling telling my husband, I saw his shadow, (laughs) his really, really dark side a couple of times before he harmed me. And I overrode it. And you're asking about self-sabotaging habits. That has been a big thing too. People who are in pain, that old saying, people hurt people. I always want to take care of and protect and love and take under my wing hurt people. And what a lesson, what a just gigantic 
lesson I received that this man in the workplace that I felt so sorry for because he seemed so lost and in pain and damaged. So, you know, I went into the mode I was taught as a child. I went into the caregiver mode and didn't listen to what I had seen in him. I went into that caregiver mode and allowed me to feel like I'm doing a little, I'm about to go into a little bit of victim blaming there where I am blaming myself that I did not digest, that I'd seen true colors. It's your drug to see the brighter side. So instead (laughs) of looking at that man with anger and saying, looking at him with anger, you immediately kicked into a syringe of drug that says he's good and I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to, because that's going to make you feel good. That's what you do, right? Yeah. And instead of letting that poison out, because you've never let that poison out of from the very beginning from your mom, always looked on the bright side and always looked at her as this angelic person instead of seeing the other side and getting that poison out of you. Now it's locked inside of you. Yeah, yeah. No, I did not see her as angelic. I can never say. (laughs) Right, well. I saw my mother as angelic. I saw my mother as an incredible big being, but yeah, I would never describe her as angelic. (laughs) So good. That's good. To bring this full circle and to for Uh, the listeners out there, you talk about so eloquently and with such grace these traumatic instances that have shaped you and just how easy it is to not be in touch with, right? To have shut down. And it happens autonomically where we shut down and build defense mechanisms. In your words, Evan, ultimately code it with shellac in order to really throw you off from the truth buried deep within. The truth that ultimately just needs to be allowed to heal. And that's really where this all comes down to. Where I've been this in the self-love series, this is all about what is it, what is required from ourselves to show up for ourselves in all the ways that need healing, that need the chance to express. And that expression could be in creating a structure for us to live in a safe way, in a way that allows us to be our true selves, allow us to feel love and joy and be intimate and to be fed and nourished and to let go of trauma and then to sit in stillness and reconnect with the source of our being. So to allow yourself to heal, it could look many different ways. And what you're saying, it gets to the heart of where that disconnect can show up. So that magic seed for you, can you tell the audience kind of what that magic seed is? So you've given me a big old bag of magic seeds since we've been working together and the three of us have been working together. But the initial power seed was when you offered me the chance to really commence to establish my own kingdom, as you called it, my own queendom, pretty early on in working together. That may not sound like this mind-blowing thing for many folks, but for me, I can have boundaries. I can have a life where what is sacred to me, what is valuable to me, that I spend my energies on it because the bulk of my existence, I have spent my life trying to heal traumas, trying to desperately make everything right, but never getting anywhere because I was putting the power in other people's hands. I was putting the power, the hand of two very 
broken parents. I was putting the power in the hands of, as I told you about what happened to me in the workplace, putting the power in the hands of, oh, here's someone who needs care. They need someone taking care of them. And instead, you're just sort of hitting that tuning fork on my life. Right now, your life is about establishing your queendom, establishing your boundaries, establishing what is terra firma for you, because until you do that, and it felt like I'm a minister, I'm deeply involved in the church. Chris, my walk in Christ is the cornerstone of everything for me. And I thought to myself, oh gosh, very selfish. Okay, I can't do this. I had, the immediate reaction was, no, I put up a huge, like, no, I can't do that. Because it's selfish. It's selfish to think about my life. It's selfish to think about healing myself. I need to be focusing on healing everybody. So I think that was the start of old wounds being healed, the start of, I mean, a creative wellspring. Because when I stopped focusing 99.9% of everything on trying to heal family relationships and trying to take care of some real issues, my family. I was wasting so much time on that. I remember I started writing songs again. I started having creative renaissance. I started dreaming of things I wanted for a lot of life and writing songs again. And it was a bumpy journey when you go from having really no healthy boundaries to trying to build that sort of protection, that sort of safety zone. Yeah, that has been my magic seed. I think the magic seed that has brought about growth healing that's beautiful mm -hmm. that's perfect it really to me it hits upon you know we've worked together for a long time and it's such a commonality between all of us going through what we go through is when we decide to reclaim ourselves in our lives and put ourselves at the center of it and not in a narcissist way but in a way of self-love it's a two-pronged approach or it has multiple angles of what we experience. On one side, like you're saying, it opens up or it reignites a relationship to parts of ourselves that have been missing. And like you said, your creativity started coming out. And that's the good side. That's the part everyone wants it to be, right? And people will kind of like, ooh, that's the magic seed. I'm just going to claim myself and have that good stuff. That's part of it. But part of it is now you're also allowing what the firewalls were preventing from surfacing, not just the creative, yes. it's right. the so pain the and the and anger, the sadness mm -hmm. and the, right. all the junk that comes with it too. And when that comes up, even right. if intellectually, like, yes, I want to tackle this stuff now, finally, what we do without even realizing is our mind, as soon as we're angry, it projects it, it displaces it, or it says we need to heal something. We need to heal someone. Oh, I need to show up in service for people, or I need to love people. That mm -hmm. I think is the hardest part when we're starting to lay down these magic seeds of our lives, what we're going to encounter, we then realize, oh, there's another level. Or who we're going to encounter. <laughs> right. The work is real and it's not always fun. But if you want to reclaim your life and all that's within, yeah, you will get the boon for sure of restored essence of yourself and creativity and expression. But are you ready to then sit with pain that will feel very counterintuitive to want to go through. And you've done a great job, Evan, of going down that road. And I know it's not easy. And you know more than anyone how it's not something that you snap your finger. It's something that you decide to show up for every day, whatever that day is going to bring. If that day is going to bring creative muse where you're writing songs, fantastic. 
But if that day or a week or a month or months are going to bring pain that needs to be released, then you're showing up there. And that's the self-love. And then there is, if you're with a partner or if you have a family, are they willing to allow that part of you to show up? And are they giving you the space to have all that come out? And that's still part of the healing because that's Mm -hmm. very tough on the other side to sit there with the person you love and let that come out. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of confidence because there's a constant, what have I done wrong? Mm-hmm. That I'm saying the partner. I How about this? It sounds How, very selfish, but it's true. How about even one step further mm-hmm. then? And let's just talk about if, well, Evan, if it's, if it's you, right? Like your partner who is one of the dearest men right. I know, right. right? It's like, how is that affecting him? But to your point, Laura, but to the other point, how is it for the person going through it, knowing that their partner has to go through this and then you feel guilty about it and you don't want to put too much on? Right. I mean, Evan, isn't that a big part too? It is. You could talk for days on this. (laughs) We could. I have been fortunate that he is non-judgmental and I feel like the magic seed that you gave me with establishing your own realm I feel like that's a part of any healthy standard operating system. I feel like he was born with it and he didn't get it Mm. beaten out of him. He didn't get it screamed out of him. And so, yeah. He celebrates you. And to have a partner or to have a family or friends, people who are surrounding you, even coworkers, to have a surrounding of people celebrate you and want you to be happy and heal and that takes a very big person to constantly celebrate. And you don't see a lot selflessly because you have to, right. right, It's not about what am I getting out of this relationship? Right. Okay. This Uh, is getting so huge, (laughs) but okay. I mean, for all the magic seeds that are in here to claim your kingdom, claim your life and start the process. And it's a slow process. Start the process of learning how to take care of that kingdom. And it it requires many parts. We talk about the cycles. There's five components that are required to tend to your kingdom. And some of them are fun and some of them are hard and some of them are painful, but you start that process. It's something you build over time, but you have to start somewhere. And so I'm so glad, Evan, that you started reclaiming, taking ownership of that kingdom. And you've been working it. You've been little by little repairing it and planting seeds in it and shining light into it. So I hope anyone else listening. Alchemy. Alchemy. (laughs) It's a hundred percent alchemy. So thank you so much for your time and your your, your candor. It's uh, very refreshing. Love you, Evan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So from Laura, myself and Evan, nothing but love.